Hey, thanks for listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. This week, lead pastor Matt Dean works through chapters 11 and 12 of the Gospel of Luke in our series, So That You May Know. And I want to welcome you again. If you're new to Grace Auburn, we've been in a series called So That You May Know, and we're working through the Gospel of Luke, looking at the life and ministry of Jesus. Last week, we ended with the story of Martha and Mary and the great reminder not to be troubled or bothered by many things, but to first seek the kingdom, to first seek Jesus and the promise of what comes when we as his people choose not what is good, but choose what is best. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 11 and 12 and a little bit of 13. So I'm saying that to prepare you that we've got quite a road before us this morning. And uh, much of what we're going to talk about needs some context and some, some framework. And so now uh, the first bit of framework I want to offer is that in this story that we're going to be reading through today, that Jesus is, in some points is speaking to his close disciples, and at other points, he's speaking to a crowd that is hostile and is trying to test him. At all points, he is the same God, but at different points, he's addressing different people. So when we read these things, it's really helpful to remember and know who it is that he is talking to. The other thing that I want us to think about from a framework standpoint is that there are two types of people. There are people whose eyes are opened or are opening to the glory and grace of God. We see this unfold in Scripture. We see this unfold in our lives. There are people whose eyes have been opened. The eyes of our hearts have been opened to see the cross, to see Jesus, to see salvation, to see our sin, to see God's sufficiency. And then there are people whose eyes are closed. They have yet to see the sufficiency of God. They have yet to see the mercy and grace of God. And this happens In Scripture, this also happens around us this morning. So as we get going, I want to begin with a prayer out of Paul's letter to the early church. And this is what he says in Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened or that the eyes of your heart may be opened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That's a prayer that was prayed for the early church that the eyes of their heart would be open. It's a really, it's a, it's a divine work when people see the glory of God and it doesn't happen apart from the power and presence of God. This occurs in other places in scripture. So like in second Corinthians, this opening of our eyes is the shining into our hearts of the divine glory or in second Timothy two, it's a granting of truth and repentance In Philippians 1, it's described as the giving of faith. In Ephesians 2, it's it's stated as raising us from the dead. In 1 Peter 1 and in James 1, it talks about it as new birth by the word. In Matthew 16, it's a special revelation from the Father. In Matthew 11, it's a special revelation of the Son. And in Ephesians, it's an opening or an enlightening of the eyes of our heart. And in Luke 8, it's being given the secret of, of the kingdom of God. That's what God does. And so as we look at the scripture today, I want, first of all, for us just to pray, God, would you continue to do that in me, in us? If there are people that are watching or present in the room whose eyes are closed, whose heart is closed, there's, there's a gap between you understanding and appreciating the grace and mercy of God and the reality of your life. I'm pleading with you today, please receive the mercy and grace of God that has been given to you in Jesus. Today is a great day to change your mind and change your heart and turn towards God. And it is not too late. 
But there is a grave difference between those who receive the grace and mercy of God and those who holistically, long-term reject the grace and mercy of God. And I'm asking you today, humbly, to consider whatever barriers you may have between trusting in Jesus and your own life. And I'm encouraging you strongly to trust in Jesus and not on your own understanding or in your own feelings or your own perception of the world that is broken in which we live. Today could be your day where you are redeemed for the purpose and glory of God forever. So that, that's kind of where we are today. And some of what we're gonna see is, is uh, confrontational and it's not necessarily comforting if we read it in the wrong light, but it is Jesus. And he is who he is. And he's like us, kinda, but he's also not like us. And he is holy, 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 and completely other. And yet he knows our frame and loves us. So we're gonna jump in this morning together in Luke chapter 11. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray just like John taught his disciples. There's so much in this one sentence. His disciples have seen him go apart and be with the Father. His disciples have seen and heard Jesus praying. He's seen Jesus relating to the Father. And they're saying, would you, Lord, teach us to pray? And his response is, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus says to his disciples, suppose one of you has a friend and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, don't, don't bother me. Hey, the door is already locked and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not up and give him, get up, give, give him bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. What is he saying here? He is saying, pray boldly. And when we pray boldly, he does respond. So Jesus says in verse nine, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. You should memorize that promise. That's perspective on prayer of what happens when we pray and what happens when we seek and what God does when we pursue him and how he responds in that. And then Jesus continues to his disciples, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, I'd circle how much more, will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And even right now, before we move forward, I'm praying for anyone in this room who is yet to trust in Jesus. Would you trust in him? Would you receive what he has done? For those of you that are struggling in your relationship with God, ask him to deepen your faith, to help you see, to help you trust, to give you more of his presence as you walk in light of his promises. Because this is what it says, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receive, and he who seeks, finds, and him who knocks, this door will be open. So seek God and be honest with yourself if you're not. 
What does seeking God look like, especially in light of the promise? How much more will your father give you? Now, as we move through this scripture, the scene changes. And we're not, just, we're not huddled up just with the disciples. Now we're in a different setting. So as we look at this, we need to hear it in a different light. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed. Highlight the crowd, because this is the setting in which Jesus is about to talk. And there is a growing crowd, but the crowd is growing in their suspicion and in their appetite uh, to see more. But they're not drawn to Jesus because they love him. They're drawn to Jesus because they don't understand. And they, some of them are opposing him and testing him. So some among the crowd said that the demon was driven out by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. In verse 16, it says, no, others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. So in light of being tested, in light of being opposed, in light of being accused to be the devil or doing ministry in the devil's name, Jesus now speaks to the crowd. It's different than a huddle with his disciples. He's speaking to a hostile crowd. And this is what he says, verse 17, Jesus knew their thoughts. Isn't that important to remember? He knew what was in them. And he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. The kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through and places and seeking rest does not find it. Then the evil spirit says, I will return to the house I left. And when this evil spirit arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. And this crowd had to be perplexed. They're like, wait, you just, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd, again, the crowd calls out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Literally, I'm so glad your mom gave birth to you and nursed you. She's blessed. And Jesus, seeing the crowd, said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So again, he's redirecting the crowd to what he ultimately wants them to hear. Now, this same crowd is increasing, and it says in 29, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. Now, the crowd's probably going, are you talking to me? And he is. He's talking to them. This crowd is addressed by Jesus. This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Key word, they repented. Continue on. Jesus says, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden. 
or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eyes are good, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are bad, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. This theme of what happens upon illumination, upon the opening of the eyes of heart. This, this is the theme that we're carrying this morning. There are some people here whose eyes will be opened, that the lamp will be lit, and there are other people it's not. It's not lit, and there's a stark contrast in this content that we're looking at together. When Jesus finished speaking about these things, a Pharisee invited him to come and eat with him. So just a friendly reminder, Jesus has called the crowd wicked. And he is challenging them to repent. And an expert in the law, a Pharisee, is listening to all of this. Try to picture this in your mind. And he says to Jesus, hey, would you come eat with me? Well, that's that's great. But the next few lines are so interesting. So here is Jesus eating with this Pharisee. And he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, this is what the Pharisee noticed. The Pharisee noticed that Jesus did not wash his hands and feet first. And he was upset. He was surprised. Then the Lord said to this man who was surprised by Jesus' lack of washing his hands, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. That's the opening line to dinner. All right, so just, just as we hear this, just know that this is Jesus confronting external, empty religiosity. And he's got words to say to this external, empty religiosity. He says, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Dinner's not going so well. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint rue, and all other kinds of herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Yes, you are to tithe, but not and neglect the love and justice of God. Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. This is dinner conversation. Three so far rebukes about external, empty, non-heart religion that's just all about show and exterior practices. And then one of the experts in the law at dinner said, teacher, when you say these things, you're insulting us. Yes, they're offended because of his critique, which is accurate. And sometimes being offended by Jesus is the necessary thing to fully trust in him because he's not like us. He is, but he's not. Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. You're lazy and you're not leading well. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your forefathers who killed them. 
So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, quote, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute, end quote. Therefore, this generation, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees now. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. That is not a great announcement for them. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and sanctuary. Yes, this is Jesus' words. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be responsible for it all. And woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. And here's Luke's comment. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him and something he might say. The plot is thickening. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem and his opposition is growing. And in light of growing opposition, Jesus continues with boldness to address crowds. And as he addresses crowds, he is confronting them with many different troubling realities in their lives. It says, meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. He brings them in. There's a crowd of thousands and they're all over each other trampling one another, but Jesus brings the disciples in. He said, hey, listen, listen to this. Be on your guard. This, this is an intimate conversation again now. He's with his disciples. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Be on guard against hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed and hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you have whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, you might want to circle, my friends, Jesus is in this close conversation with his followers. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that who do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Jesus is saying, if you are to fear anyone, fear God. What happens when we rightly fear God? We're humbled, and respect and awe and adoration is the outpouring of our lives. And Jesus is saying this warmly, He's saying this in a tone of care. Listen, he says, indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Not one of them is forgotten by God. So here we are being cared for. This is a loving word. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the son of man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before the synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. He's, he's brought them in. He's comforted, comforted them, and he has given a hard, clear warning do not blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. I want to help you. I want to shepherd you in this thought today. This idea of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, which will not be forgiven, 
is a holistic rejection of the grace and mercy of God. It is a holistic rejection of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is an absolute refusal to submit to God as God. It is looking at what he has done, and it is in arrogance and pride saying, it's not enough, it's not good enough, it's not what I want. It is sin at the clearest level, rejecting the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrected grave and the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit, and it is someone foolishly, foolishly saying, I want none of that forever. And that is horrible. What fool would reject the mercy and grace of God? And Jesus is speaking to the heart of all matters. And I just want to encourage you this morning, it is not too late to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ. It's not too late and you are not too far gone and your sin is not too great. But I assure you, if in your lifetime or if in someone's lifetime, they holistically, consistently reject the mercy and grace of God, it does not end well. If someone holistically positions their heart to say, I reject the mercy of God and the grace of God and the power of the gospel, I'm rejecting all of those things proudly, unashamedly, forever, then you have absolutely rejected God. And there is no room in your prideful, broken, sinful heart to receive the grace and mercy of God. And that is horrible. That's the worst of all possible outcomes. Jesus is bringing his disciples in and he is saying to them, you are not forgotten by God. Not one hair of your head is unknown. You are valuable. How much more valuable are you? So, Again, it's so helpful to see this in the right light. Jesus is speaking love and comfort and security over his followers, while at the same time drawing a clear line to those who consistently reject who he is. And within that crowd, there are those who will receive and those who will reject. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, again, now we're in the crowd and not huddled in. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? And then he said to him, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable, a group of certain rich men produced a good crop and he thought to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, well, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Verse 21 is the point of this parable. This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. How do we apply this word of God? Be rich towards God. Then Jesus says to his disciples, again, so we were in the crowd, now we're back to his disciples. I tell you, therefore, don't worry about your life. Why is he telling them not to worry? Because they're worried. Why is he saying, please don't worry about your life? Why? Because he sees them, he knows them, he loves them, and he is saying to them, do not worry about your life. So just a quick survey of the room. You don't have to raise your hand. I know the answer already. How many of you have worried this week? Yes. Have I worried this week? Yes, 
Are there things beyond my control, things beyond my grasp, things that I can't do anything about that cause me concern? Yes. Have I worried? Yes. Should I worry? No. Do you worry? Yes. Should you worry? No. Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more, circle, how much more valuable you are than the birds. Who of you by worrying could add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, adding an hour to your life, why do you worry about the rest? Again, hear the care of Jesus to these people that are following him. Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. Circle that. Your father knows what you need but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what he is getting to. And then he says, be ready. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servant whose master finds them watching when he comes. I'm telling you the truth. He will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. How do we apply this word? You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is a great reminder that, that this moment is an important moment. But this moment that we share and have together is not all the moments. That your whole life response to Jesus, every day, Monday to Friday, it's your whole life response to Jesus that says, I'm ready for Jesus. It's not just showing up in a room on a Sunday morning. It is giving your life, and that's the movement of discipleship. That's learning over your lifetime to hear, trust, and obey Jesus beyond an hour on a Sunday morning and into you can have all of my life. Every bit of me now belongs to you. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And he says, you must be ready. Then Peter says, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? And I love that detail. Because Peter's, he's like, who's this for? He, he's saying, who, who is this? Are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? And the Lord answered, Jesus answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Peter's listening. He's still going, is this for us or for everyone? 
Jesus says, I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, quote, my master is taking a long time in coming. Now Jesus is, knows Peter's mind and he's saying, if that master is losing patience and he begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. These next words are not real comforting. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place to the unbelievers. And that servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready and does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. Again, not real comforting. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. And here's what Jesus is getting at. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. That's the heartbeat of his answer to Peter. To whom much has been given, much will be demanded. These next words, again, this, if we just read it in isolation, it's really it's troubling because these are the words of Jesus right after that. He says, I've come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. And he says in verse 50, but I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is completed. What is his baptism? He knows the cross is before him. He's on the road to Jerusalem and he is distressed. He knows that death is around the corner. And then in verse 51, Jesus says, do you think that I came to, being, came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That is troubling. What does that mean? It means that there are people whose eyes are open to see, know, and love Jesus. And there are people whose eyes are not. And there's a dividing line, and the dividing line is Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. That's his name. But the Prince of Peace is the one who establishes peace with God. And if you reject the Prince of Peace, you do not have peace with God. And therefore, you will not have peace with other people. And Jesus is what brings people together. But Jesus is also the dividing line. And if you think about history, he is both the most loved and despised character in all of history. He's the dividing line. And so when it's talking about he came to bring fire, it's not that he lacks the mercy and compassion of who he is. He just knows because of the cross that is before him, because of the baptism he must undergo, that there will be a real clear line of delineation. There are people who love and trust Jesus and those who don't. And that's what he's saying. He said to the crowd, okay? So Peter heard all that. I think some of the crowd probably heard all that, but now Jesus definitely says to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites. This is Jesus talking. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this time? In other words, don't you see that I'm here? Don't you see that I am the promised one, the one that people have been waiting for? Don't you know that it is I, I'm Jesus, and you, you're missing it. You're missing it altogether. 
Verse 57, why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As, as you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled to him on the way, or he may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer will throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Again, these words, this is, this is falling on the crowd, and the crowd is not really loving it. And it says now in verse 13, chapter 13, now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifice. Pilate had massacred Galileans. And this crowd is saying, well, Jesus, what about these people that were killed? And Jesus is answering them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But look at this next line. But unless you repent, you too all will perish. Or those 18 who died from the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. You might want to just underline, unless you repent. Unless you repent. So here, here, here's this, Jesus is other, and he is talking about the dividing line, and at the same time he's saying, repent. 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 So we see the holiness and the wrath and God's anger, rightfully so, against sin and evil. And we hear the invitation of the Prince of Peace saying, repent, repent, repent. It's good to hold these two in tension. He is both just and the justifier. Jesus tells this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Again, this is Jesus speaking. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. The best news for us in this parable is that he will dig around and fertilize it. And in this parable, we see that God still is patient because a fig tree takes often three, four, five years to bear fruit. If you're a baby Christian, be patient because the Lord your God who has saved you is patient towards you. And we hear the heartbeat again of God's patience in this parable, but his patience is not unlimited and his mercy is not without an answer. He answered the question of sin on the cross once and for all. And we end this morning with another sweet reminder of the mercy and care of God for people. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman who had been there had been crippled, it says, by a disabling spirit for 18 years. And she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. So I just want you to picture with me this morning, for 18 years, you've been like this and you've been disabled, not only physically, but in your heart. And chances are you're not, you're not seeing who's around because you're just, you're, you're hunched over and you, you can't, she probably did not see Jesus because for 18 years, this was her view in her being disabled. And this is what it says, when Jesus saw her, how about that for theology? When Jesus saw her, when he saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Isn't that awesome? That Jesus, out of a crowd, 
He saw this lady who had not been able to look up for 18 years. He sees her. He goes to her. He touches her. He heals her. She praises him. And that is the story of salvation. Praise is the outcome of the mercy of God at work in your life. And so when we praise him, it's because he's touched us and set us free. And I just need to acknowledge this morning, for those of you who have yet to feel or experience healing on earth, you've got it in heaven. And we live in a broken world and people die and people suffer. And sometimes it does not end the way we want it to end. We live in the already, but not yet. And unfortunately, the reality is death is all around us. Evil is all around us. Suffering is all around us, but we do not belong to the earth. We belong to him. He has given you healing and you are whole forever in Jesus. And even those on earth who experience healing, and he does do healing. But for those of you who are still waiting on the healing, don't give up or grow weary in doing good, because he's worthy of your praise, regardless of your comfort. So as we walk in this together, we want to ask God to open the eyes of our heart. We want to believe God that he does bring healing and hope and comfort to people, but he has forever given us healing and hope in the gospel. And that's the foundation from which we trust. And that's the reason why we praise. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about Grace Auburn Church online at graceauburn.church.